Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. I'm smiling a little bit because I can see our guest uh, tw- twirling his mustache, which is great. Uh, today, I have another special guest with me, Dr. Owen Anderson. He's a professor of philosophy and religion at Arizona State University. And uh, today, we're going to be talking about um, dystopias. And so I'm pretty excited. Uh, let's just Let's just pull him in here. Dr. Anderson, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. You're you're becoming a regular. It's gonna be Owen yeah. Pensies, man. This is great. I, I can kind of be the sidekick. Yeah, <laughs> I love, that's hilarious. That you uh, you're Johnny Carson. I'm angry, angry man. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, w- so what we what we wanted to talk about a little bit before we jump into dystopia too much is uh, utopia and how utopia can only be uh, had if everyone starts practicing jujitsu. Yeah, that's right. That's well, that's answer. what I wanted to find out about because you'd mentioned that you're going to be in a tournament soon. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Uh, um, I don't know how good the tournament is or anything, but I, I just uh, I started a month ago, a month and a half ago. But I, I mean, I wrestled in college, so I got. Yeah, some I was going to say you have you have a pretty solid wrestling background, right? Yeah, so I'm I'm a white belt, but in any tournament, I'd have to compete as a blue belt. Oh, because your wrestling background? Yeah, that's like I a thing know. that they do. I guess wrestlers used to just run ship and they'd win money and stuff, and it's not fair. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's well, it's not yeah. just wrestling. It's it's uh, other combat sports or something. I, there's a couple that you have to compete up. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah, so it'll be sweet. Yeah, I'm um I'm in the uh, Grace University Combatives program. Yeah, which is uh, I like a lot because the first the first set you learn before you get to master cycle is uh, street applicable stuff, directly applicable to the street. Okay, and they studied what are the main things people do on the street? And then they put together, what are the 36 best jujitsu responses to those? Dang. So you're set for a guy who know maybe he's seen a, a jujitsu video and he watches UFC, but that's it. Right. You know, he thinks he knows, but he doesn't know anything. That's, that's the best. So, and everyone else is less than that. So you're set for, for anyone like that, which is like 99% of the population. Yeah. Dang, that's sweet. Yeah, that, that makes sense because they always do those uh, Gracie breakdowns. You can find those yeah. on YouTube all the time. Yeah, that's what they are. Yeah. Those, yeah, those are a lot of fun to see those and just what what happens to the random person. And so it, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. I really recommend it. And it's a good – it has a lot of good analogies to what we do in philosophy. Yes. Yeah, I found that too. So I started um, – I finally had some time to get into jujitsu. I've been wanting to do it for a while, but I finally had some time to do it with the semester lighter load. And I started chess as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. actually studying chess and, and it's a similar kind of thing. I, I mean, it's a trope that people talk about all the time, but it's a trope for a reason. You know, it, it, it is, it's thinking a move ahead, trying to get yep. someone to react this way, giving up something to get something. That's what I love. I mean, that's what I love about jujitsu is it's like physical chess. Yeah. Right. Right. So instead of just sitting in a chair and you're moving some pieces, uh-huh. like your whole body's involved and you got to be anticipating this person five moves ahead yeah. and thinking what you can do right now. So yeah, I love that. I like it too. Uh, both both disciplines there, are both sports, whatever, if you want to call chess a sport, it's fun because it's so different. So like I could feel real good someday beating up on a white belt or something. And then I go and I play chess with someone and who I would beat up on. 
and they just destroy me mentally yeah. and chest. Like, dude, if we were playing a different thing right now, but yeah. no, and, and I learned to be a fool in, in new disciplines. Cause if you want to be good at something, you got to first humble yourself and be a fool. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so well, I, that's I, a good one. I think that's what Joe Rogan said was jujitsu is really good for guys mm. because they need to be humble. Then you're going to tap 10,000 times yes. and right. it's just good for you to, yeah. to realize, Oh, I, I can't get out of this. I have to tap right now. Yeah. There's something about that. Definitely. Yeah. 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 That's awesome, man. So, it, so there, was a, uh, there was an yeah. onion uh, skit, you know, the comedy, mm-hmm. uh, the onion. And they had one that was, it was as if it was a sociological study. So it's it talking like it's an official study, but it was about how men overestimate their fighting abilities by 4,000%. <laughs> so how it had, it would have guys talking about, yeah, if I ever got in a fight, I would just smash them with my elbow. And then if I have to, I'll break a bar stool over their head. <laughs> and it was emphasizing something that's true, which is guys way overestimate yeah. how it'll go. And you, unless you do it, you don't realize how fast you'll get tired. I mean, you start throwing punches and swinging and flailing in 30 seconds, you're done. Yeah. And the adrenaline's going, you've never Mm -hmm. done it before. Yeah. Yeah. That's something, dude, you you brought up uh, Rogan, Um, him and Jocko Willink were talking and they were, they were saying um, maybe the solution to police brutality and stuff is to have all the police become purple belts. Well, that's what Gracie university is suggesting. They've done a couple of films where they'll show, how a police situation could have been handled with jujitsu. Cause the idea with jujitsu is uh, you're able to keep everyone safe, including the guy you're wrestling. Right. So right. you get him into a position where he can't hurt himself or anyone yeah. around him. Yeah. Well, and that's, that was a big thing for me with, with jujitsu. So I, I like to wrestle wrestling. Does it, if it, if it does transfer over into fighting, it, it transfers over into smashing the guy you're fighting and then punching. And I don't want to smash someone's face. I don't want to do that. You know, yeah, so right. a, a great thing about jujitsu is it is a combat sport, but like you said, you're controlling them. Mm-hmm. And I saw this great video of Matt Sarah once uh, in like a, in a bar, this dude is really out, uh, unruly. Yeah. And Matt yeah, Sarah puts him in a hold. Right. And he, and he's mm-hmm. like, Hey, just chill out. We're just hanging out. And he wasn't yeah. mad. He was just hanging out because he knew that. Yeah, and the guys around him, the, the waiters and stuff came up, right? And he's like, no, yeah. no, he's fine. I'm he's fine. Okay. We're just fine. holding him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's great. Yeah, I saw I saw one like that. One of the Gracie breakdowns where it was a guy in a park who tried to kidnap someone. Ooh. And another guy who knew jiu- he actually He's actually a kickboxer, but he also knows jujitsu. So he yeah. used jujitsu and subdued the guy. But then other people at the park wanted to beat that guy up for trying to to kidnap a kid. Yeah. And so he was able to protect that guy and say, wait, I've got him. Just get the police here. Everyone's yeah. safe, man. Yeah. That's crazy. We, we need more people, uh, uh practicing some jujitsu there. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what it is. That's what it means. Right. The peaceful art. Yeah. Oh, is that what that means? Yeah. And that's, that's Japanese probably. Gentle right? art. Yeah. Okay. Dang. That's sweet. Well, dude, uh, I don't know how to make a transition here, but uh, we can go back to the utopia idea because we're going to be yeah. talking about dystopia. And I make the claim that we would be in a utopia if we all did jujitsu. Can you lay out like what, what is, what does utopia mean before we get into dystopia? Yeah. And I wonder about um, with uh, just kind of your claim that, you know, this is a little bit silly. We'd be in a utopia, but there's something to that because if you do start to roll with someone, you know, someone on the street if they don't know what they're doing, that's what the combatives program's for. Yeah. And pretty quick, you know, they're going to have about 30 seconds of energy. You just basically uh, exhaust them and yeah. then submit them. But if they do know what they're doing and you start to realize, wow, this guy knows jujitsu. Then you say, wait, wait, why are we fighting? What gym do you go to? Right. Right. Let's just go to the gym and roll together. Yeah. So, yeah. but utopia, yeah, it could have two meanings. It's ambiguous. Mm-hmm. It could mean the good place, the good uh, country, or it could mean no place. Ah, 
And that could be for two reasons, right? It could be that there's no place like this. Yeah. So, yeah, what I think you're right. We have to start there. What is a good society in order to know what would a bad one be? But we could we could go either direction, I guess, okay. right? Because there's some we have some gut intuitions about if society looks like this, it's not good. Yeah. So the opposite should be true. Yeah. But even then, people have some differing intuitions about that. Some people would rather have freedom and danger, potential danger. Others would rather would want protection and less freedom. Right. right. Yeah. And and at least from what I've inherited or received from my teaching on the the, the fathers, the our, our country's fathers, that we we would more we want the freedom and the risk. Yeah. And I'll take care of my family, and I'll yeah. limit my risk by being a man of action myself. Yeah, right. Because you have to give up your partner. give up some of your life to the person protecting you. Yeah. Right. Basically, your money or something, and say, look, you protect me, and I'll give you more taxes or something. Yeah. Yeah, and and so again, like from from how I've received the word utopia, it's always in a disparaging way. It's always, oh, it's not a utopia, man, or utopia. It's always used in a negative way. That guy just wants utopia, or or um, communism mm-hmm. promises utopia, but doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't ever. And I actually haven't heard it in a good way, except maybe Plato's Republic. Yeah, is that a utopia? And even then, people disparage that as well. Yeah, and and you and I talked about this one last time, so it's good for a continuity from our discussion. Yeah, yeah. And um, and, and I just like to put a plug in because I just gave a talk at at Arizona State. I'm a professor at Arizona State University, and on Tuesday night, so two days ago, I gave a talk on free speech. I titled it "Free Speech and the Logos." Mm-hmm. And if you go to my YouTube page, Dr. Owen Anderson, you'll see that title right there. It's probably the first video because I just put it up. Nice. Free speech and the logos. Okay. So that's one of the things people might want in a, in a good society. What what counts as a good society? What Plato, what Plato's doing in the Republic is he, he wants to know what is a good soul. And he says, in order to figure that out, we should, it's like, as if we project the soul writ large into a city, mm-hmm. and what would a good city be? And then we'll know what a good soul would be. Yeah. So I think there's something to that, which is we need to know what the good is in order to make these kinds of assessments. Like, is this a good city? Is this a, a good place or not? Yeah. And, and I think people don't even do that. They, that's why they stumble so quickly. People just jump right in. They don't have a good definition of the good. And, and that'll trip you up right away. Yeah. Well, so um, you're you're big into like uh, looking at the natural law kind of stuff. And so I wonder, um, some people might might think that we're talking like subject, subjectively, sub, subjectivism kind of stuff. One man's utopia is another man's dystopia. Is there, are you saying... Um, there's an objective good and an objective good society that would, would be ordered towards that good, right? Like there's actually right. a picture that we can have. Uh, do we, how do we come by that? So we talked about the, the need for looking at those criteria and stuff. How do we adjudicate between rival terms, rival conceptions well, uh, of the good? Because this will get us into, especially 1984. Yeah. Because the idea is the good is based on human nature. Something's good for a thing according to its nature. So if so, so what's good for a rabbit is not the same as what's good for a giraffe yeah. or a horse. So to know what is good for a human, you'd have to know what is a human, right? Good for a human, not a computer. Yeah. So yeah, you'd have to know human nature, which is an objective thing. Mm-hmm. You discover human nature, you figure it out. It's not something that you create. And I have some quotes for you when we get to 1984 about that exact point. And that's really, for us, we might, we might sort of think about the Garden of Eden and, and the temptation from the serpent. Mm-hmm. Because that's what the, I think the temptation is. You put yourself in the place of God, 
and you decide what's good and evil for yourself. Yeah. Instead of God made you with a nature and what's good for you is dependent on that nature. So we'll see that theme throughout each of these books we're going to talk about today, which is, can you, can humans make their own natures? Can they recreate them to make a perfect place? And so I think you're right. When people say utopia, the place they describe, usually when I hear about it, I think, man, I would hate to live there. Mm -hmm. And let me give a couple of examples. I think uh, uh, our friends Sam and Dean Winchester ended up in heaven. But here's what their heaven is. They're they're with their family forever. Are you sure that's heaven? <laughs> I mean, you could take your family maybe for like a barbecue, your extended family, right? Can you imagine you can't get away from them forever? <laughs> that's not that like heaven. I think that they might be pl- doing a, a good place on Sam and Dean, right? And, yeah, yeah. and they're going to switch in there. Yeah. Or think about like the, the place Star Trek ends up. Like Earth is utopia by the time we come into the Star Trek story. We've solved all of our uh, fights and now we're moving on. We have fights with other planets, but our fights on earth are done, but it seems kind of boring. That's why you'd want to go on enterprises. You'd want adventure. Yeah. And and earth seems like kind of pathetic at that point. Like, what would you do with yourself? Mm -hmm. No, I'm not saying you have to have, have like fights to have good things happen, but because it's a secular universe, purely Mm -hmm. material, that's all you have. There's no really depth of meaning to your life. And we're going to encounter that one in Brave New World. So we'll come yeah. to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you're right. Th- these aren't good descriptions of the utopia. I think what's happening is what we're trying to describe really is the city of God. Yeah. I think you're and, right. So well, in, in that sense, though, um, would you characterize the Garden of Eden as a utopia prior to the fall? The Garden of Eden in, in that stage is like probation. Hmm. So you're supposed to have dominion filling the earth and multiplying. Yeah. So the Garden of Eden is not the end of it. That's why the scriptures end with a city, mm-hmm. which is the completed act of human dominion. Yeah. Beginning a garden, no, no dominion, no evil at that point either. And then human dominion throughout history culminating in the city of God. That's really good. Yeah, I, I, I just uh, imagine someone someone bringing that point up. Oftentimes, I hear pastors uh, use that same uh, depiction you just gave to argue for like living in the city and not giving up on the city. That, that the Bible ends with the city, and I always like I I hate the city. I live close to Chicago. I hate it. Um, I like it yeah. and I hate it. Right, but when you have to drive say, in, though, the city. I don't know if that'll work because the city of God is yeah. contrasted with Babylon, the blank. Exactly, man. So, I don't know. If it's exactly, it, yeah, it's exactly right. So you, it can get really bad in the city when it's given to unbelief. Yes, exactly, exactly. And you know, I love Chicago and I hate Chicago, but I, I think I can still hate Chicago because it's not the city of God, right? Like yeah. I, in some sense, I should hate parts of the, of the city. Well, that's what that, remember. That's the very first thing Cain did was he wanted to build a city yeah. for himself, yeah, and Nimrod true. wanted to build a city for himself, and then yeah. in the secular ones, Gilgamesh wanted to build a city for himself. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense of I'll build a city, name it Andersonville, and I'll be I'll make a great name for myself. Yeah. These are the men of renown that Genesis six talks about. Yeah, and that's a kind of attempt to get to immortality, but you're building a city under man's law, which is going to be a nightmare. Yeah. and I, that's what these books are about. Yeah, definitely. Well, dude, on that note, that's a great that's a great uh, segue. Well, which one do you want to start with? We got three that we want to look at today: that hideous strength by C.S. Lewis, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and 1984 by George Orwell. I'll let you uh, yeah. lead the way here. 
So here we have, yeah, 1984, Big Brother watching you, my copy. And then uh, that hideous strength. Oh, yeah. And I then the- I was telling you as we were, we, you, you and I were getting yeah. ready that I had Brave New World. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it's that copy. And uh, can't find it. I, and I had it out for our purpose. And I, I don't know where, uh, which book, stack of books it got put into. So I have these. So, so let's start with 1984 as, okay. as the framework. And so, um, so interestingly, this book was written in 1947. I think it was published in 1948. So it's like a reverse 1948. Yeah. And this is what it'll look like in 1984. Well, and that's what, well, maybe we comment on all three of them. Think about what all three of these are, right? Yeah. All three of these are written at roughly the same time period, mid 20th century. Yeah. They're all about the same kind of thing. And so we, but we have three different authors who are different worldviews. Yeah. We'll touch on that a little bit. Yeah, uh, Huxley, similar views of what a bad society would look like, what a what a dystopia would look like. And interestingly, they have, I think, the same answer, even though C.S. Lewis especially is a particularly Christian attempt. Mm-hmm. Uh, all three of them have the same mid-20th century answer to the problem, and I'm going to suggest it, it was insufficient. Yeah, okay. So 1984, let me pull up a few quotes I've got. So we have a point where the government is in control of all information and can watch you. What's interesting is when he wrote this, that was high tech stuff way in the future. 1984, we know in 1984, it wasn't, we didn't have the technology yet, but now you could easily have a nest camera in every corner of your house on your phone, walking around seeing what's going on. Laptops right here. Yeah. Yeah. They're probably watching us right now through our feed. Yeah. So, it gets to the idea of control through information. And it's not just preventing crimes. It's even preventing thought crimes. Yeah. So you'll have thought police. Let me give you a couple of quotes. It says power is tearing human minds into pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Mm. So you can take apart the human and reconfigure them however you want. I think that idea is getting to the temptation with the serpent. Mm. You can be whatever you want. You can be your own God. Yeah. Or the state can be its own God. Yeah. Not living under the law of God, living under the law of man. Mm-hmm. And think about the ways that we do that now, the ways we tell people they can redefine themselves. Yeah. He says this, don't you see that the whole aim of new speak is to narrow the range of thought in the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. Mm-hmm. So the goal is it, like further than minority report or is seeing the future to stop a crime. Yeah. You want to stop outward crimes, but you also want to stop inward thought crimes. Like thinking the go, I don't like the government. That's a thought crime in this yeah. story. And in, not not just being able to see in someone's mind, but taking away the words that they would use to do that. Yeah. So not even able to have those thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that's so interesting because he's he's playing on the uh, the connection between 
words and concepts mm-hmm. and how we develop our concepts uh, through the process of, of using words and thinking right. and interacting with each other. And so if you don't have the words, it, uh, d- depending on what you think about concepts, you know, some, some are probably really a priori, but some are, are a posteriori and they, they mm-hmm. take, it takes us talking with people to form these concepts. And so if yeah, you don't have the words, history, yeah, have dominion. Yeah. And so if you don't have these words, you can't form the concept. And so they're controlling, they're preventing future insurrections or yeah, thought crimes by changing the words so that you don't even have the, the concepts aren't able to be formed. Well, you can see this in some societies that have been under oppression, both mm-hmm. pre-modern and modern, where you'll see studies done with the citizens and it doesn't even occur to people yes. that they could rebel. Right. This is, this is just how life is. This is what yeah. it's like. You live, you're born, live, and die. And so there's no sense of progress and dominion over the natural world. Or, or I, mean, I mean, so we were talking about the temptation of the garden, because I think that's going to be the, the heart of each of these, the temptation to put yourself in the place of God. But think about the, what, what Adam was doing just before that in mm-hmm. chapter two. He was naming the creation. Yes. Right. And it, I, I take that to be not like spot, fighter, <laughs> right. rover, but the kinds of things like a, a horse is different than a rabbit. Yeah. And there's different kinds of things that your mind is discovering in the world. And it's because yeah. he did that, that then he could see none of these is a sufficient helper for me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. None of them can do that with me. A dog can be my best friend, but he can't have dominion with me. Right. Right. So he had just shown that he can know the nature of things. And then the very next test, do you know your nature? Do you think mm-hmm. you could be God? And, he, and yeah. they, they failed that one, obviously. So I, I think that's going to be the temptation here. Putting up, humans putting themselves in the place of God, whether it's Cain building a city or Nimrod building a city, Babylon, yeah. the law, the city of man. Yeah. There's a, so I, I have some of my favorite quotes from this are towards the end. And uh, it, it reminds me, I always had C.S. Lewis in mind when I was reading this and what Lewis called the poison of subjectivism that we're, we're turning to the self. And it's similar to what you said earlier that we're, we're turning to the subjective self and saying, I'll construct reality or, or socially we're turning to ourselves mm-hmm. and saying, we'll construct reality. And so on page 325 on mine, uh, uh, the, the, the dude from the party, I always forget his name, but he's talking oh, to right. the main character, Winston, mm-hmm. uh, O'Brien, O'Brien is, mm-hmm. is talking to Winston and he says, uh, you would not make the act of submission, which is the price of sanity. So he's saying you have to submit to the, to the state. If you want to be sane, you prefer to be a lunatic, a lunatic, a minority of one. Only the disciplined mind can see reality. Winston, you believe that reality is something objective, external, existing in its own right. You also believe that the nature of reality is self-evident. When you delude yourself into thinking that you see something, you assume that everyone else sees the same thing as you. But I tell you, Winston, that reality is not external. Reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else, not in the individual mind, which can make mistakes, and in any case, soon perishes, only in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. Whatever the party holds to be truth is truth. Yeah. I have one from around that same time that you and I both picked up on it. And it says, not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy. Mm. So, yeah, that's right. So Adam is is interacting, using him as the type of man. Yeah. Adam, man. He's interacting with, with external reality in naming mm. the creatures. And then he's tested on can you be God? And so, yeah, once we have denied 
that there is anything real outside of our minds. Yeah. Now, this version is collectivism, but there's also an individualist version. Right. Right. And there'd be two sides of the same incorrect coin. Mm-hmm. So the individualist one that might have been more popular in the West is more like the consumerism model where you've got money and time and you should spend it on whatever makes you happy. Yeah. In a way, that's what we'll see more. It's more more like what we see in Brave New World. Yeah. 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 Okay. This was actually this book was the first time I saw a metaphysician, uh, which which was great. It, it kind of put me on a metaphysics actually. So uh, O'Brien is talking to Winston, and Winston's trying to figure this stuff out. He's trying to reason for himself. He's trying to think through. No, you can't. This can't be right. And then uh, O'Brien goes, "You are no metaphysician, Winston." And then he goes on this, you know, sophistry line of thought. Yeah. Where he, he's trying to break down his concept, he's trying to break down his idea of uh, truth outside of the party. Yeah. And so they're they're using this subjective turn, collectivism, in order to break down our sense of self, our sense of truth, our sense of reason, yeah. and objective reality. Is that well, yeah? Is that possible? Do you think? Do you think the human mind is capable of? We we you talked about people under regimes like this. Is it possible to ever actually truly stamp out our? idea of objective truth? Well, that, that means there's some people who would not even have that idea. Mm. You have to explain them what truth means. Like I'll hear people use the word truth and I know they mean something more like how I feel right now. Uh, yeah. But I'm reading this book also. Herbert Marcuse. Yeah. Uh, Negations. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the founders of the uh, critical theory, critical theory in the States. And that's a lot of what he's working on is how you can, well, the first one I read, you can break things back down and build them up as you'd please. Mm-hmm. There is no being. Right. There is just beings. Yeah. So in one way, we might think this is really simple to prove. They're, they're saying something's true while denying truth. It's kind of a self-referential absurdity. Yeah. But I think we're going to have to do a little more work than that. I think that there's something more going on here, which is, deeply embedded in a number of the world's philosophies mm-hmm. and ultimately goes back to you can be your own God. Yeah. Denying the difference between humans and God and the you might be the individual or it might mean the collective humans. Yeah. You can replace God. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if, I have you do, like that. if you do, you get to build yourself up however you want. Yeah. I mean, that's one way to understand the tower of Babel, right? Yeah. Building a tower to the heavens could, could both be dedicated to the heavens and also the distance, building it up high. Yeah. I'll reach up there. Yeah. Probably, you know, if there's another flood, we'll survive it because we've built a tower like this. Ah, okay. So we can overcome whatever God wants to throw at us. We can overcome it. Mm. And he says this one, every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. They get rid of the statues mm. and rename them. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Yeah. That's just, that's what this is getting to the idea of the negation of being. There is no being. And so there aren't distinctions. That's the, that's the end of reason because by reason we make distinctions. We say a and non a and it's not both a and non a. And so when, when you, when you come across those who want to argue Against reason, I think you and I talked about dialetheism and uh, yeah. was that you and I and uh, yeah, Graham uh, Priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's he's following the the Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna, mm-hmm. and Nagarjuna denies there's being. Yeah, and so it's not surprising. Yeah, once you do that, those are like your two options. 
reason or negation of all things. Yeah. And I think that's that gets us to the word itself in John chapter one. The word is that which makes God known. Yeah. And God is God. God's not the creation. Mm-hmm. But in idolatry, people want to say the creation could be our God or I could be my own God. Right. Any way I want it, that's the way I need it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so in, uh, so nineteen eighty four is like one of the most famous ut- uh, dystopian novels because it's. I, I think he's got a quote. I think it's in here, but it's like, if you want to see the future of humanity, imagine a boot on a human face forever. And it's just like the, this party rule because you've turned to subjectivism and object uh, neglected or denied objective natures, objective reality. You know the existence of God. Then you get to mold yourself into whoever you want. But it turns out the strong man comes along or the strong man, you know, oligarchy, whoever, and they're going to, they have their own view of reality and they're going to put their boot on your face and they're going to reshape things through power. Yeah. Well, that's the will to power, right? That's right. Yeah, Nietzsche Nietzsche coming down to us in Foucault and Marcuse. They're popularizing that idea. Mm. Um, yeah. Let me read one more says, and if all others accepted the lie, which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, when the party's low in, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. So I'd be, you'll have this idea, right? Whoever, the winners write the history. Yeah. Whoever's alive right now writes what the past was about, which then shapes the future. Now, it's too easy to make direct comparisons to where we're at now and you know, anybody from either side of the political aisle could say this. The other guys, my opponents are 1984, yep. but it's hard right now because of some of what we've been going through not to draw some comparisons. Right. And, and so I'll leave that to everyone watching and won't make them myself. But yeah, the control of information and deciding what you can talk about and how you can talk about it. And if you use words that are deemed as unacceptable words, yeah. then then you're, the thought police come in until you stop thinking that way and they'll reprogram. You know, I think... I think there was a couple of elected politicians who called for reprogramming of their political opponents just this month. Yeah, yeah. Those political, and, and I was reading this to get ready for our talk when they said that publicly. And I, I'm just saying to myself, and in fact, let me read that one to you. That's another quote I have here. And, and it read like it was straight out of the New York Times, not out of George Orwell. And and no one seemed in the, 90, in the New York Times to, have, to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't speak that. Anymore. Somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah, when, uh, Winston is interacting with O'Brien and going to be sent to room 101. He says, what is in room 101? And O'Brien says, you know what's in room 101. Everyone knows what's in room 101. That's where you're reprogrammed. Mm -hmm. And so then he says, there are three stages to your reintegration. There's learning, there's understanding, and there's acceptance. And you're at stage two. And, And that's when this quote came out where this person was like, yeah, these people need to be reintegrated. And re-educated. Now I'm like, what? <laughs> what? We're in, we're in room 101 in real life yeah. now. Yeah, dude, that's so terrifying. That whole idea is so terrifying because you you know what's in. And it's like it's your worst fear, and they're yeah. gonna put a cage in your face, and there's a rat, a hungry rat's gonna run yeah. in your face. And yeah, and and you will say whatever, you'll think whatever, you'll try to see whatever because this rat's coming at your face. Yeah, and and just that idea of playing on your biggest fears. Uh, and then trying to re-educate you. What something that's different for me? I don't want to make. A, uh, I'm with you. I don't want to draw a, a ton of the conclusions for our listeners. But uh, I always thought 
it would come by force. You know, I'm not saying that we're in a totally totalitarian regime or anything, but when the Bible says that uh, people call good evil and evil good, yeah, I thought that they would straight up say, hey, you're good, what you believe is good, and I don't like good things, so screw you. Right. But really, it's a twisting around, and they say, what you think is good is evil and right. wicked, and you're a bigot and a yeah. sexist homophobe, and you're bad. And it's like, that's not fair. What the heck? Dang it. Yeah, that's, you and I talked about, I think, in our first interview that no one can knowingly do evil. So there's no one who, who goes on and says, well, uh, Parker knows the truth, but I don't like the truth. So I'm going to believe something else. Right, right. They, what they think, they think what they believe is true and that what you think is false. And they think their life, what they're doing are good things. Yeah. And what you're doing aren't good things. So they suppress the truth with a lie, but they themselves aren't, aren't thinking that. Yeah. Do you think so? Sometimes we, we like to think of like, figures of pure evil we think of hitler or we think of uh stalin stalin to me maybe more than hitler because hitler seems insane but stalin seems like he was intentionally trying to do evil would you say no he just he had a, he had a warped view like yeah he's still culpable and stuff like that right but yeah he believed you could bring about a society let's just pick a number where one billion people are happy but on the way a hundred million have to suffer yeah well, as you to march as utilitarian, then that makes sense. Can someone be a, just a radical egoist and just say, one. "I don't just just me, just me is happy." My great, uh, yeah, but I don't think that's. A, I think we oversimplify those yeah. guys, okay. and we say okay. he must have just been a radical egoist. No, you need to look into his philosophy. That's what my. I have a great books reading group. Anyone yeah. who's listening is free to join us because we do it uh, live online. And this is our book. This one of our books this spring is Schultz and Nietzsche's. One day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. So this is fictional, but it's really about what happened to Shultzenitsyn, who was in the Russian army, but he said something negative about Stalin and was sent to a Siberian work camp. The Gulag, right? Yeah. And that's the archipelago that he wrote. Yeah, that's another book of his, right? So uh, that, that I was going to mention that as like a, a real life dystopia. You don't have to go to fiction to read about it. Yeah, seriously. But how do they justify? Because we might take the easy way out and say, oh, in fact, I think that's what we do, for example, in um, Lord of the Rings. We, a lot of the orcs are kind of painted. First off, they're very ugly. They're bad dental work. They slobber. And they cut down trees. So they're yeah. bad guys. Right. right. But in reality, they're pretty industrious. Mm-hmm. And they, they seem to be good team players. They put the, they put the team over themselves. Yeah. And they're building things. What have the elves done lately? <laughs> they seem to be just coasting off the ruins of a, a failed civilization yeah. where the orcs are up and coming. So we, we might paint our enemies real, really easily as, Oh, they're just wicked and they're, they're evil and they're yeah. stupid and they believe what they're doing is wrong, but they just don't have the willpower not to do it. Yeah. When, when really they're, they're believing a false story. If they are yeah. wrong. They're, they're, yeah. 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 So you should be able to take the time to get in there and show how they're, how whatever narrative they're telling themselves isn't true. And it's, it's culpably not true. You should have known that. That's good. Okay, so we so we got 1984 here, and uh, there's always there's always memes about how we should move it into from nonfiction or from fiction to yeah. nonfiction, right? And, and that's funny, and it's terrifyingly true and scary. But um, do you, do you want to stick with this, or or should we move on to the next one? Well, let me let me read a quote from it, which is going to begin to give us how all three of these have a similar solution, and then I'll yeah. build a case that it's not a very it's not a sufficient solution. 
So he says, uh, never again will you be capable of ordinary human feeling. Everything will be dead inside you. Never again will you be capable of love or friendship or joy in living or laughter or curiosity or courage or integrity. You'll be hollow. We shall squeeze you empty and then we shall fill you with ourselves. So that sounds terrible, right? But but uh, I'll, I'll come back to it. But, but you can find a very similar quote in each of the other two, Brave New World, when he's talking with Mustafa Munz, his response to Mustafa Munz is just almost like a paraphrase of this. Yeah. And and Lewis, I mean, this sounds just like the abolition of man. Yeah. You see, then you know, this is this is supposed to be the fictional abolition of man, like yeah. the abolition of man in a in a in a story form. Yeah. So so and before that, I got into Lewis like super hard the last couple of years. But he started with this this essay, Poison of Subjectivism. Usually starts with an essay, then he writes a book. So then he wrote Abolition of Man, and then then he had this turn to to narrative and was like, all right, here we go. Here's a narrative form of it. And I I really like uh, that he did his strength. I, I can't wait to talk about that. But uh, yeah, so so that's the that's the solution. Do you want to critique the solution later or? Uh, yeah, we can see how it comes out in each of them. Um. Each of these things is part of human nature. So, so what I said was it's not sufficient. I didn't say that the, this isn't necessary as part of the solution, but it's not going to get us. It's not going to get us all the way where we need to go. So, yeah, yeah each of these things you're going to have to deny human nature is another way I would say it. And I think that would more accurately capture it. But what I, I guess here's what I would say: this is a non-cognitivist solution. So the things that are mentioned here are feelings of various kinds, joy, capable of love in terms of the feelings of romantic relationship. Uh, you'll feel dead inside. Uh, you'll feel hollow. Uh, you, you, you don't have courage, which is, is like, this is the kind of the, a uh, virtue soul-making solution to the problem of evil. You need suffering in your life. Mm -hmm. This comes out real clearly in Brave New World. You need suffering to, to demonstrate virtues, to be a good person. So in contrast, what I would say is that doesn't show that the other view is false, though. It might be that truth leads to this kind of outcome. Yeah. What you need to do is get in and show how O'Brien and the party are wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, I, they seem to be a kind of material monist uh, system. Yeah. So, so can you can can Winston give a proof that the soul exists, that we're mm -hmm. not just bodies? And this is not a proof to say, well, you won't laugh. If you had a soul, you'd laugh. No, oh, come on. You could program a robot to laugh. Yeah, right. So, yeah, can, how would Winston do? So, in other words, when the party doesn't know, Winston doesn't know, and he doesn't advance the cause at all of knowing. He just doesn't like the outcome. Yeah. So, in one way, you have a struggle now between, between a skeptic, materialist skeptics, and fideists. And the fideist one might look more attractive to us, but that's just really because of our own Christian background. Someone else might, with a different background, might say, no, I actually like the materialist skeptic side. They're really efficient. Yeah. So we're going to need more than that. But all three of these guys in the mid-20th century do that same sort of solution. So um, what what is Orwell saying does does Orwell give us a prescription for what to do here? It, it doesn't even to me. Everyone always says this is a cautionary tale. I think Orwell is just a good writer, and he's writing about what he sees. Do you think he's is he intentionally writing this and saying avoid this, and here's how to avoid that? Right. No. So I, all three of the ones we're looking at today are novels. 
which means a couple things. When I, when I come to a novel, it means this. The author's intention doesn't matter. Mm. It's a work of art. Okay. So it stands, it has its own life once it comes out of the author's mind yeah. and either describes reality and we say, wow, this is masterful or it doesn't. But knowing the author's intention doesn't help one way or the other. A lot of times the authors don't understand their own work. That's what Socrates found, remember, in the Apology? Yeah. So, And then second, it is describing, not prescribing. You're right. So, so literature is just describing something. So you're right. I don't think he's giving us like a, a how-to manual of how to avoid 1984. Nevertheless, the characters, I'm talking here now about yeah. Winston, not, not George Orwell. Okay. Winston doesn't have an answer. Yeah, that, and yeah, because of that, he ultimately fails himself. Yeah, yeah, and he ends up becoming neutered. Like by the end of the book, you're. He's I think just, I think Leonidas probably has more rational argument than Winston, and he'd be able to withstand that. He'd say, "Yeah, go ahead, hmm. come and get it." Yeah, right? <laughs> that's so epic, dude. I love that. Yeah. So, yeah. so in other words, why does Winston break and Leonidas wouldn't? Is it just the willpower? Uh, no, I think that there's so. I, I, th- I think Leonidas has willpower because he has a good argument about why what he's doing is the right thing to do. Mm. We've talked about that before too. About about if you don't have sufficient answers or or answers that that suit you well, it mm-hmm. starts to erode your will over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you'll, it'll break down eventually, and they'll figure out what it is. Willpower only lasts. It's like it's like you're holding a a, a you know medium heavy bar. Can't see it like this. Yeah. You can do that for a while and slowly your arms start to shake and they start to go down a little bit and you're done. Yeah. So it's like that. The pressure on you eventually breaks. So you don't have knowledge. That That's why Plato and Socrates said knowledge is permanent, immovable. If you had it, you won't lose it. And if you lose what you had, it means you didn't really know. Yeah. Okay. So I don't think we find a character who knows here. We're finding in the mid 20th century, Phidias and skeptics. The, and the skeptics tend to be in the Soviet sphere, and the fideists tend to be in the West. But because the West only had fideism, look at where we're at now. Yeah. We didn't have knowledge. We yeah. lost what we had, which means we didn't have knowledge, to use that Plato formula. Yeah. That's good. So Orwell's got this this famous line, all art is propaganda. And it's interesting because it's like, well, what – what was your proper? Because he he thought that right, and uh, there's a famous collection of his essays called "All Artist Propaganda," and this is a work of art, and he's just kind of owning that. I, I need to bone up on that that essay again, but I don't know what what he's like. You said it's a work of art, and it's it's open to interpretation. I don't know what what his goal was. Like, do you do you know what his intention in writing this was? Do you think it was just to write a, a well, I suspect, you know, he has in mind what's going to happen with the Soviets and he has in mind some of the people, maybe the same kinds of people that, that Lewis has in mind. Yeah. yeah okay. It's part of the air that they're breathing. Cause there's a reason yeah. these novels are coming out. Uh, uh, Huxley's in like th- early thirties maybe, but, but both uh, Lewis's book is I think a year before yeah. 1984. So like 46 or something like that. So there's something that's producing, that's leading these guys to write these books. Yeah. Yeah, and what is it? Mm-hmm. There's uh, something in the air, I guess, and also their answers. In this way, you could say they're all persons of their time. Yeah. And their answers reflect that. Now, I know we love Lewis, and in your audience, probably people are Lewis. And I already took a little bit of a shot at Tolkien. 
Yeah. So I, I've, I've lost some of my, my social capital yeah. and I'll have to be careful not to take too many shots, but we could say, yeah, Lewis's answers are very indicative of when he lived and using the Plato formula, if we got knowledge, then we would have maintained it in the face of these trials, these challenges, and we haven't. And I think we haven't in the same way Israel under the kings didn't. It isn't just that we had it and we didn't keep it. It's that we replaced it with something else. We brought Asherah and Baal into the sanctuary. And so that needs to be identified and repented of. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's more than just, you don't have feelings. You'll be hollow. Yeah. Show the material philosophy is false. Show there's more than matter. Show that matter hasn't existed from eternity. That and the, the scary part of 1984 for me is, is when O'Brien's talking about, who owns the the present owns the past. And I know like there's objective truth. I believe in that, but when you do have this kind of totalitarian control and you can disappear people, you think of uh, the Soviet uh, union um, USSR, they're, they're erasing pictures of people, which is, they're always hilarious to look at because they miss a hand. There's mm-hmm. a floating hand something like that, but they're, they can control history and they can control what you believe should should uh, Winston have made an argument about objective truth there? You think, or yeah, or uh, reason is actually, I think it, you know if you have to give a little paragraph like I, the one I read, you'll won't have any feelings. You you can attempt to erase these things, but ultimately it's it's John chapter one verse five. Yeah, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. Mm-hmm. You can't erase the word. The logos. And so in that talk I mentioned that I gave this week on free speech and the logos, I gave two examples. Socrates, who I said was a good partial example. What he gets us is this. You shouldn't claim to know when you don't know. Yeah. And the reason why I'm superior in one sense, he would say the wisest is because I at least know when I don't know. But then I said, that's not really going far enough. And I went to Acts 7 and Stephen. Because Stephen takes it a step further. Not only do you think you know when you don't know, you should have known. Yeah. And because you didn't know, your forefathers killed the prophets, and now you've killed the promised one. <laughs> and so that's a lot more cutting to where we're at. It's not just that O'Brien's wrong and he makes us feel hollow inside. It's that he doesn't. He's culpably ignorant and working against the word of God yeah. in a broad sense, not, not limited to the Bible. But that ver- all that by which God is known, general revelation and the providence of God, you're trying to erase that. Good luck, so to speak, right? You're not going to be able to do it. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's why I think Stephen's execution is so much more violent than Socrates. The Greeks could be violent if they, and passionate if they wanted to. So it's not like a difference in the, the groups. It's that you either, after being told that, you have two options, confess it, repent, or silence the person who's saying that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's getting, I think I'll be closer to it. Can we show by reason the logos, logos, I know philosophy circles tend to say logos. Yeah. Um, can, can we show by reason that, that these guys are wrong, that the very foundation of their city is ruined? Yeah. And okay. think about how the, the foundation of the city of God is described in Revelation. That's a solid foundation. 
of these stones that it's built on, 12 layers. So there's a symbolism there, but the idea you're getting across is this foundation is not going anywhere. Yeah. Now, well, this is where good. I think probably of the three books, and you'll be mad at me, the best one is Brave New World. And the reason for that is why they're doing what they're doing. I know in the book, um, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, the yeah. author, this is from the 80s, but the author said, uh, yeah, the Brave New World is more like our situation in America. Right. So the idea there is a similar kind of control, but they do it by helping you be happy. Mm-hmm. So they take away suffering as much as they can. Old age and sickness are removed. You don't have to be around death. They, they also organize the kinds of people so that you're content with your lot in life. Like you'll be made just smart enough to do what you're supposed to do, but not smart enough because they're doing eugenics. Yeah, not smart enough to become discontent. That way, yeah. And anything that's left over that they can't get rid of, they have something called Soma, which is a drug. Soma is the first drug from, from the Hindu Vedas, and people have tried to recreate it. And Timothy Leary was trying to do that when he developed LSD. I didn't know that. Okay. That makes sense. As I understand it, uh, that's something that uh, Aldous Huxley used. Huh. So, but to think of the timeline there, I think that overlaps or if it was a different drug, but he was involved in drug use to to overcome these things. To actually, um, Aldous Huxley has a book, The Doors of Perception. You open the doors, the perception of your mind with these drugs. And a UCLA philosophy student read that book and dropped out of the philosophy program and started a band. Do you know what he named his band? No. If he's the band is inspired by the book, the doors of perception. What do you think the band is? The doors. The doors. And he became much <laughs> more well-known as a rocker than he ever would have as a philosophy wow, student. I know that story. He named it after Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception. Wow. You open those through psychedelic rock. That's what The Doors rock is, right? Yeah. So you, yeah. you hear that. You see a TV screen with swirling colors. You have, you have Jim Morrison playing in the background. You have some LSD. And you're seeing new dimensions of reality no one's ever seen before. Yeah. And, and that – that whole movement, man, it, it's back. Like it's it's back through DMT is the new one, right? This is the God drug. We'll take some DMT really? or we'll take mushrooms and we'll have the spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. And that's really what Christianity is. Like you hear it on Joe Rogan all the time. He's got guys on and this is what the Christians were doing. This is really, you know, the, the burning bush had DMT in it. And that's yeah, why Moses. Yeah, all right. Well, here's the thing. That's the best line from Brave New World. Soma is Christianity without tears. Hmm. So Christianity, according to their understanding of Christianity, you want to get to ecstasy, yeah. but you have to go through agony first. Is we don't give you ecstasy without the agony. Is that view based on like the beatific vision? Is that what they're thinking? That, that's Christianity like that, yeah. Static. Like that. So again, we're going to see, just like with 1984, a non-cognitive description of the highest good. Yeah, that's good. That's experience. good. Yeah. And, and you know what? We can give you the same experience with chemicals. Yeah. So there's this whole discussion, and Mustafa Mons is talking about how they've done away with the need for God. That's why we don't need God anymore. It's not that God doesn't exist, he says. It's that we don't need him. There's no argument back. The response back is the same kind of things we just read in 1984. Well, you don't have opportunities to be courageous or show virtues. Suffering is needed sometimes to make life more exciting. Human feelings, like... 
Well, that's not an argument to show we need God. So again, we have, we don't have, we have skepticism doing its thing and building a city based on skepticism. And then we have the fideists saying that the skeptics are wrong, but not having a case for it. Yeah. Now I think both the characters um, would appeal to us because we don't want to live in that kind of place, but that only says something about our own background. Yeah. We're like the authors of these books. We have a similar background as they do. And someone yeah. else might say, no, a Soma society sounds great. Where, where is that at? Where's the, where's the directions? Can you, can you send me the uh, Apple map? Yeah. One, one of the, I almost didn't read this book. I read it a few years back. Uh, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And I almost put it down because the, the beginning of it's so rough where they're talking about like the orgies and like little kids fooling around with each other. And it was just so rough. And it was just like, dude, this one does hit a chord with me in, in this culture where uh, 1984 is like, okay, don't do this. Don't give too much power to the, the, the politicians. Yeah. You this and you're like, oh, we've been doing this. Yeah, we've been that- doing this to the, the the stuff about sex is to show the dehumanizing aspect of this behavior. Yeah. Because that's one thing that's very intimate. It's the most intimate thing anyone can do. Yeah. If you can dehumanize that, you there's everything else is easy to dehumanize yeah. after that. Right. I think Lenin had a line where he said, This is uh the Soviet Lenin, not the the uh English yeah. communist. Lebowski in my head now. Yeah. yeah. And Lenin says something like, I'm going to make having sex as common as drinking water. And what he meant was you just pro- the way you have to destroy the family because it's its own little thing and it has to be destroyed to so the state rules. And the way to do that is just oh, give men sex anywhere they want it. Then they don't have any reason to be married anymore. And then and then you take away the raising of the kids. The government does that. Right. And there's nothing left besides you and the government. And. That's why I think the sex in Brave New World, though, makes you want to it makes your stomach turn, makes much more sense than the sex in 1984. And this was Lewis wrote a wrote a review of 1984 and said he he said that uh, uh, Animal Farm was better because it didn't have this weird uh, view against like a puritanical sex because it seemed like George Orwell's view of sex didn't really fit in there. didn't really fit as much, but in brave new world, it makes total sense. Cause it's exactly what you said. And then the, uh, this, this woman gets pregnant by one of the, the, one of the leaders in brave new world. And she actually gives birth naturally. And that's disgusting. That's this yeah. gross thing. It's not pure. It's not, you know, hermetically sealed. And she gives a, a birth to this child who's then raised on old books. And he's yeah. thought of as a savage. Yeah. He's a thinker. He's an old yeah. school thinker. Yeah, and he eventually gets involved in one of these orgies, right? And the worst and suicide. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, think about the music and the imagery we have right now. Uh, I, I notice that sometimes you'll see movies that are supposedly about high school, but the actresses are hired; they're in their twenties. Yeah. Right. So it's not illegal for them to be very sexual. Whereas if it was actually a fifteen-year-old, it'd be shocking. But they're playing a fifteen to seventeen-year-old. Well, there was there was a. Uh... Netflix show about, you know, young girls and they were young girls and they're getting in all sorts of trouble. Thank God because of that. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't look into it, but I remember reading about that. But so yeah, the, the, the um, dehumanizing of sex and replacing it with something else like Soma. There's something that's getting there about human nature. What these guys are noticing is that quote I read from 1984. They're noticing breaking apart the creation and trying to put it back together in your own 
way, but they themselves didn't have knowledge. And so they're not able to give a, a really tight uh, response to it. I don't know if you've ever seen like uh, one of the Gracie's do a triangle It's tight. Yeah. That guy's done. Yeah. Uh, and that's what a good argument should be like. When that argument comes on and you clamp down, there's no breathing. You're done. You just ta- you might not even have time to tap before you're out. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so I don't see that so far in these two we've gone over. I see I see descriptions that are disturbing. But that might be what Orwell was getting at about propaganda, which is a lot of art, 20th century to the present, is meant to kind of shock you into doing what the artist thinks is a political cause. Yes. That's not the same as art. So, so he'd be right if he said lots of art in our time is propaganda. Yeah. Or he might have meant this, that all art is based on a view of reality. That's true, too. Art does communicate things about objective reality. And so some people, if they get it wrong, they won't. their art will get it wrong, too. Yeah. And, and so he, he, it almost sounds like he's going so far as to say there's not a fact of the matter. But these books resonate because we don't want to live in that kind of place. We recognize at some level it would be wrong to live my life on Soma. But we don't have an argument really in response. And so what, what's, what's popular right now is to legalize it, right? Mm-hmm. Just have more ways that you can numb the pain. Yeah. So we haven't had an argument. We wrote these books 60 years ago. And... Where are we at? Well, they they strike a chord with us so much. Do you do you think the reason that they have lasted? Even I mean, I don't know how many people are, are forced to read them. I read them both of my own accord. I think I, I was assigned Animal Farm when I was younger. I, I know I was, yeah. but the other two I haven't read until I was an adult. Um, but but people still talk about them. Do you think that's because they actually? did understand something, even if they didn't understand it enough to have a solution, or is it just because we're afraid to live in that kind of society that they depict? Yeah, it's probably a little bit of both. Think about how many dystopian books came out in the last 15 years. And if you'd read these first, especially the, the 1984 and Brave New World, like uh, this Divergent series. Yeah, I've heard and, of that. And each, each, there's different groups in society. It's almost a direct copy of Brave New World's groups. Right. Yeah. I mean, they might have like a lawsuit going on with yeah. the, the, the family of Aldous Huxley. Uh, how about uh, Hunger Games? Districts and. Yeah, you have districts that are pitted against each other. Right? Is, uh, is there war in, in Hunger Games all the time? Well, I think they ended another war, created this one, and then to avoid a war like that, they divide the people up and they tell the groups that the other groups have wronged you. Yeah, that's like that's like 1984, right? They're yeah. they're always changing sides, who they're at war yeah. against. We've always been a war against these guys or those guys. Yeah, yeah. So it keeps you distracted, and then gives you heroes to speak about. So I think that there's something there where it's sort of like, well, this is getting at something. Yeah, I. It's almost like we recognize if we don't have a foundation, we're going to topple. Yes. Yeah. But we don't know what how to get a foundation in place. And if anyone else says they have one, then screw you. I'm going to freak out at you. Yeah. You don't get to tell me about a foundation. Yeah. Well, I, I think I'm thinking here, especially of, of uh, Hebrews, the end of Hebrews five and beginning of six, mm. when you should have been mature, you're yeah. still a baby drinking yeah. milk. 
you should have been. foundational truths in place. And then look at what Paul lists. A lot of those are things that would still stump uh, seminary students now. But those are elementary truths, he calls them. Remember, remember yeah. Sherlock Holmes? How do you do it? Elementary. elementary. Right? Yeah. These truths that Paul lists are elementary, right? And, and they're not seminary level, in other words. Therefore, Room 101 theology, right? Theology 101. Yeah. So, yeah, we don't have a foundation in place. Christians don't. And they're easily manipulated, and they they lose what they had. Well, okay, so um, I think you're right about uh, the non-cognitive answer in 1984. And I want to push back. I think you're still right here, but I can imagine someone saying, well, it seems like Huxley has this emphasis on reading, and being in, in educating yourself. Cause he says, you know, we want to produce consumers. And if you're sitting around reading all the time, then you won't be a good consumer. You won't consume much. And then I think at the end, they have a, a, a secret Island kind of place where the thinkers go. If you do want to talk, you don't, you're not cool. Just having orgies and drinking Soma. So is, is Huxley trying to go for a cognitivist uh, yeah. approach and he's just failing or. Uh, I think that's a really good, good question because what it reminds me of is Persons who re, who come to see something beautiful in the classical education, yeah, yeah. and the tradition with it, yes. again. But seeing it's beautiful is the non cognitive thing, yeah. and they can't really make a case for it. Yeah. But they might say things like, "You should learn Latin. Uh, why? It's a dead language. Well, it helps you learn math." And it helps you learn the, the roots of our other words. Well, why don't I just learn the roots of those other words then? So they, 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 they'll, they'll give arguments. And usually it comes down to, if you pay attention to the kinds of arguments, a non-cognitive thing. This is beautiful. And modern education's ugly. This is yeah. what they get in Lewis a lot. Ooh, that's so good. I think that's right. Because we have this idea of like, there's a, another meme going around about, you know, ditch the man cave and, and go back to the study. And it says, beautiful, rich mahogany, all these books and everything yeah. is in their place. You got a nice pipe and it looks really beautiful. Yeah. But all the guys resonate with that. It's like, how many books did you read last year though, bro? Like, I know. Well, that only do a list. They'll say, I read 365 books last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Competition about, but, yeah. Uh, think about uh, Mr. Bennett from uh, Pride and Prejudice. The, the, the father of Elizabeth. And that's what he does all the time. He sits around reading. So he, he's read a lot of stuff, but his family's a train wreck. He got, he got Lydia in big trouble. You got the other daughters not knowing who to marry. So, yeah, you could read a lot. You could know a lot of what the classical people said. I have this picture. I tell my students, I'm going to show you something really scary. You, you might like scary movies, but this one's going to give you nightmares. And I'll put a picture up. It's a black and white uh, kind of cartoon of an Oxford Don. And, you know, he's got spectacles and he has an Oxford robe on. He has a copy of Plato. Isn't that terrifying? And the the point I'm making is, yeah, that didn't get us anywhere. We tried that and that got us to Platonism, which isn't true. Platonism denies God the creator. Yeah. Dang, because that's not. Yeah, that is shocking. You're you're propagandizing me right now. No, uh, uh, that is shocking because I I love Lewis. We're naked. Yeah. Well, I think of that, right? Because I'm still I'm still drawn by that same picture of yeah, let's let me have like a old three piece suit and let me get some uh let me get some little things on my my elbows there and and it is more like the the there's something about it that makes you feel good, makes you yeah. feel sophisticated and smart. 
Yeah, certain personalities, like some personalities, they'll want to be the kind of person where if you say who's the best quarterback, they know the answer and all the statistics to back it up. And other people want this. You say, hey, what did Plato say in part three of book nine? Oh, I actually memorized that. Let me tell you what he said. The same personality. Yeah, it just carries over. So, yeah, okay, well, so, in other words, neither one of those getting into knowledge. Yeah. And so, although uh, it might it, it might appear that Huxley's answer is we need to we need to be educating ourselves and would seem uh, a cognitivist answer, he it, it, he's probably doing that, or he may be betraying that he's not doing that throughout the book in that it, it's appearance only because it, yeah, it doesn't was, have. The, there was a beautiful past, yeah. and there's a kind of nostalgia for the past. Lewis has this also. But and and then I get the token does like the 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 elves just live off the past, mm-hmm. right? And they're the good guys, yeah. And it's so bad in the present that they have to all leave, right? Yeah. So when you get pushed, though, here's the problem: the present is the baby of the past. Mm-hmm. The past was so great. How did we end up here? That's such a good. That's I hate that, but you're right. Like, yeah, if if these Oxford Dons were messiah figures then why are we where we're at well we didn't we didn't do what they said enough well i don't know man yeah, if they were so good you haven't tried communism yet yeah, you have yeah, to really yeah. try it. right well so now i'm not saying nothing true was ever spoken of in the past right i'm speaking to the romantic movement of the past which says that was beautiful this is ugly and saying, back that's to- not going to be enough yeah, yeah. that's good so now think about, let me, let me give us some examples from that hideous strength. Now, one thing, here's something I'll point out there. So the other two are called secular, not because those guys weren't religious in any respect, but because nothing like that comes up in the book. But here we'll have Lewis. And what he's kind of putting in there new is you're going to have essentially angels and demons involved. And so some, I know there's a big movement now to, to uh, re-enchant the world. And they'll hey. think, yes. Lewis is re-enchanted. Well, what we really need, here's the problem with stories in 1984 is they don't have enough angels and demons in them. Yeah. Now, I'm not opposed necessarily to this. I mean, in scripture, there's sometimes angels, but they're they're given a relatively minor role compared to God. Whereas the Gnostic worldview reverses that. There Mm -hmm. is a fellow named God who started things off. But you should interact with the local spirits and angels, and they're the ones that have power. And if you're sick, do something about it with them. So the Christians can easily kind of adopt that attitude. Whereas we see, and then these angels become the ones who create, and we don't see anything like that attributed to them in the Psalms. It's always God created this. God acted in history. God did this. So I'm, but I'm not, I'm not opposed to that in Lewis, but I'd like to suggest that Milton does it better. And in, in Paradise Lost, I know I know Lewis liked Paradise Lost, you have the Parliament of the Demons trying to decide what they're going to do. And you have this, the backstory of the fall of Satan and his temptation. He has this great discussion where he's trying to tempt the other angels to join him. And part of what he says is the same thing that he ends up saying to Adam and Eve. We can be gods. I, I don't remember being created. I might have existed from eternity. So the essence of the problem is not seeing what's clear, the eternal power of God, and attributing that to something else. 
that's even going on for Satan. And then he does that with Adam and Eve, and they don't know it. So let me let me read a couple. I, I got a couple of quotes from the. While you're looking for that, I want to show everyone this uh, OG cover is like my favorite. I have I I don't read this one. This is just one that I like, but it's what got. Year is uh, that? Uh, it's, it's this one might be later. This might be seventies. It doesn't look like it's forties. See when this one is. 40s. Oh yeah, this is uh seventy. 65 or 77, one of those. And you can tell it's got that like trippy 70s vibe going on. I'll try to see when was this one I have. The, mine is this one. Yeah, I've got I've got that picture on this guy. Yeah. yeah that, the, the one you have there looks like an updated version because the only date I have in here is 1946. Wonder when that covers says, uh, Lewis's preface is from 43. So this might be one from 46. My dad got this when he was young and then I ended up with it. All right. So let me find these here. You probably saw this one, right? Uh, McGregor losing the other day. <laughs> that's the best. Yeah. That That's yeah. I think that's from his his loss a couple of years back, but <laughs> well, I was just joking that as if that was the other the fight the other day. <laughs> All right. Now, do you want to uh, talk at all about a Y zero one? So this is, I think, um, I like this book so much because I didn't know about it for so long, and then I read it, and I think that. I think he's he's finding some things that that do come true. I think he's seeing the poison of subjectivism, the turn towards postmodernism. Uh, there's this quote on page 200. It says, "Despair of objective truth had been increasing, increasingly insinuated into the sciences. Indifference to it, and a concentration upon mere power had been the result." And I mean, that, that's another thing that, that comes out in the other books as well is subjectivism, uh, despair of objective truth in, or indifference to it. And then this concentration on the power, because there is no objective essences. There are no natures. There is yeah. no. So if there is none, then we have Nietzsche's super, you know, Ubermensch, Superman, and he comes along and he, he's going to save us. And he ends up putting his boot on your face forever. Yeah. The will to power. Is the uh, the the but let's think through this because because what you said I I'm personally inclined to like that I mean I want, I like truth and objective natures, yeah. um but does my liking them and preferring them amount to an argument? Like, yeah. What would the argument be for truth? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I would. I think truth is pretty much inescapable because it coheres to the reality we live in. So I think you can deny it with your words, but I don't, I, I don't think you can deny it with your life. You know what I mean? Like the livability test, integrity, live what you're professing. There's something to that, but we were talking about uh, Grand Priest earlier and Nagarjuna, another uh, philosopher, Hindu philosopher, that he follows is Shankara. 
And what he said was that reason and the mind are like an elephant struggling in deep mud. You can construct your theory and someone else will construct theirs and you'll argue about it. Both of them have strengths and weaknesses. And that's all it comes to. The highest philosophy is silence. Being able to overcome those dichotomies of reality. You'll you'll see hints of, of later on what Hegel does. Anytime a monist, anytime there's a monist, they end up saying the same thing. Reality is one. It divides into two, which then become one. Unfortunately, that is what they they do in um, probably the best show out there right now, Cobra Kai. Okay. Right? You'll have uh, the two sides, John Kreese and Mr. Miyagi. And their two schools produce Johnny and uh, Daniel. Reversed. Dan Downs with Miyagi, Johnny. And they represent the two sides of the yin yang. And at the end of the last, wait, this won't be a spoiler, will it? It might be. I I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but you could spoil oh, yeah. away. So yeah, at the end of the last one that they, they team up, the two become one to become able to, and that's star Wars that, you know, that's the original idea of star Wars. Right. You order and chaos. And so about that, you have to, you thought is just a kind of a byproduct. I actually, I remember I had this discussion in the faculty dining hall of Christ Church Oxford with another philosopher who said thoughts are just our self-justifications to ourselves of what we do. Yeah. Do you, can you just turn that on itself right there? You can, but he would say it doesn't matter. That's just you making yourself feel better about your philosophy. Yeah. So this is the kind of, this is like a philosophy of life. This is more like we, we might paint it as a really ugly subjectivism, but a better picture would be the the uh, picture of Emerson and Walt Whitman and yeah. getting involved in the beauty and reality of life. Mm. So I, I think we're going to have to do more than just it's either will to power and subjectivism or there's objective truth. Yeah. Well, okay. So so in in that hideous strength, um, there's his view, his version of the objective room, or sorry, it's called the objective room. It's uh, his version of room 101. And you're not tortured. Well, you are tortured, but you're tortured in that they're asking you to do these random things, to go touch this, to go touch that. And things are helter-skelter. They're, they're off-key. They're off-kilter or whatever. And it's like this picture. Like, you try to look at that thing. And it's like, are you seeing a face? Well, no, because there's a third hole in the in the middle. Oh, maybe is that like the, the third eye and the mouth? Is, no, it, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You're trying to find this meaning here, and it's messing with your mind. It's psychological torture, trying to break yeah. down your concepts of objective reality. So, yeah, right. So let's let's work with that. Your concepts are as arbitrary as the other concepts. And to get mm-hmm. you to see that, we have to break you down. It's like that quote I gave from 1984. Break your mind into pieces and then rebuild it. Right. Yep. So it's all arbitrary. Christian. Christianity and that tradition arbitrary. That, that's one of the problems that comes up when people say, let's return to the beautiful tradition. Well, it might surprise you, but there's other beautiful traditions in the in world history. Very impressive uh, traditions that could rival and perhaps beat the Greek uh, tradition. So how do we know which one to go back to? Why, why this Western one without just being arbitrary it just comes down to, I like it. Without an argument. Yeah. It's just down yeah. to your non-cognitive and your enemy becomes kind of an ad hominem and yours ends up in ugly stuff. What's wrong uh, with Soron? He's ugly. Hmm. 
Yeah. Imagine if, imagine if the orcs got to write the story. What would the elves look like? Yeah. Lazy bums. <laughs> yeah. Pointy-eared, yeah. yeah. Well, I think maybe they don't the- do anything. They're just lazy. The orcs are very industrious. You never see an orc on a break. You know, they've got an axe in hand chopping at something. They're working. They're, they're hard working. They're taking orders. They're working together. Yeah, yeah. So that's another kind of perspectivalism. So I know Lewis wants to escape that, but what has he given us that will get us out of it? We already come into it agreeing with him. Yeah. So that's well, why I might be like, yeah, this is right. This is really bad. Interesting. Uh, so for you, um, so at least in, in the abolition of man in the fourth chapter, Lewis goes in on uh, what he calls the Tao. And we talked a little bit about this, but it's an objective morality. Yeah, good. That's um, what I guess. And, and, I, I can't remember. I should know this better. If he goes to that in that hideous strength, he should, because this is like the n- novelization of that. Um, is what, what, what would you yes, say? It is. Exactly. I'm glad you're on the same page as me. In my book, 293, Merlin's talking. Yeah, Merlin. And let me read this. He says, there were tales in my day of some, wait, no, I'll go back. A thought occurs into my mind, and I do not know whether it is good or evil. But because I am the high council of Logris, I have it's got blurry right there. I have awaked. If all this west part of the world is apostate, might it not be lawful in our great need to look further beyond Christendom? Should we not find some even among the heathen who are not wholly corrupt? There were tales in my day of some such, men who knew not the articles of our most holy faith, but who worshipped God as they could and acknowledged the law of nature. All right. This is Lewis. This is, I think this puts a finger very close. If we have this and non-cognitivism, together we have Lewis. The problem with men is they don't have chests. Men without chests, they need feelings back. They have their mind and their feet, which is what does things. So Lewis identifies reason as one of the problems. I would say what he means by that here is instrumental reason or mathematical reasoning. Not the way I was using earlier was reason itself. What what helps us think, what makes us ability to think. So you have humans and they can calculate and they can do things, but they've lost their feelings. And if we just restored feelings, men with chests, then things would be set right. And there must be some of these somewhere else. Okay. I think about that guy in the last battle uh, who they meet in heaven, right, who was a worshiper of Tishrock, but he worshiped him as if he was Aslan, so he's all right now. So, so here's where the Tao comes short in Lewis's thought. They're partly corrupt – but not holy. They know they don't know about the faith, but they worship God as they could. Well, well, hold on. If they worship God as they could, they're not without excuse. And they don't need the Christian faith, which is about redemption from not knowing God as you should have. Yeah. So which one is it? Yeah, and I wonder because he had to bring in Merlin, Merlin's in like a, a grave in Logres and they have to Merlin ends up like being the the savior because he's not is it because he doesn't he hasn't been corrupted by the the modern turn towards the self yeah. like it's, it's an appeal to tradition right yeah. this magical sense of tradition 
Yeah. Literally, because he wants to learn about a pearl, so it crushes the pearl into his powder to study it, and it ruins the pearl. The medieval mind just saw the beauty of the pearl and didn't have to crush it the way the scientific mind does. You just appreciate there's magic in the world. I don't know how these things happen. They're just magic and you just love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. It's non-cognitive and it forgets. What, what's the recent Steven Pinker book about uh, enlightenment now or something? Yeah. And he goes over and he's right. My goodness. We've done a lot of impressive stuff. I just think by coming to know the nature of the world, I, I think that's actually, I, I don't think he means it this way, but I, I think he's given some pretty strong arguments for God's existence in there. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to return to the medieval ages. Right. There's the, the distinctive thing of the medieval ages was the bubonic plague. That's not even a, a threat to Parker now. Right. It's not on mm-hmm. Parker's radar of concerns. But every now and then I do think about it actually, because there's a, a pet shop. I love pets and animals. There's a pet shop that has prairie dogs. And I guess prairie dogs have the bubonic plague, yeah. so I do think about it here and there. But but what I mean is, even if you got it, they'll cure you. Right. I still go to the pet shop, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't avoid it like the plague, like I should. <laughs> um, right, so, wait a minute. This is in Lewis in a number of places. The Tao people, there's a vague sense that everyone has. He's reading Paul this way in Romans 1 and 2. I know this is completely opposite of what Paul's saying. There's some vague sense that even the Gentiles have. And then it's made clearer for us in scripture. And by the way, we, this is how Dante handles uh, the stage of limbo. Adam, Abraham, Socrates, they're all in limbo because they had some vague sense of God, but they didn't yet have the Christian scriptures. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. That, that's not what's being said in Romans 1 and 2 at all. Yeah, our the eternal power and divine nature are clear. That's a lot. And I don't see any of these other world religions affirming the eternal power and divine nature, but they should have. Yeah. Well, uh, again, back to to, to your your uh, culpability. Um, I forgot what it's called. It's like you you you're culpable for not knowing. What culpable do you call ignorance. Culpable ignorance. That's right. That's what I said earlier. Stephen does in his speech in Acts seven. But but Romans one says they've been clearly perceived, and and you're so you'd say that they've been clearly perceived by someone in the past, but that we've lost it. And now we're still culpably. Yeah, I think in that section, he's giving a history of the human race. They were clearly perceived. Now we've exchanged, because he also says they're they're exchanged. So how can you have both those at the same time? So he's describing what's happened to us. And now we're at that stage where we've exchanged them for idols. We call something else eternal. That's what Lewis might be going with that, right? Like he might say in the past before this this turn, well, Romans was written way before. Yeah, I think that's Adam. I don't think that that doesn't survive the fall, past the fall. Well, here's the thing. We don't need to go to Romans. Like someone could say, oh, you're just assuming scripture. I'm using that not as a proof text, but to illustrate the point. Lewis has a very bare view of natural theology. And I don't think it'll be enough to get us where we need to go to overcome these dystopias. Well, so um, here's, I want to, I want to push back again to just to see where where we're at. Lewis um, try one of his laments is that the modern man has separated practical reasoning from uh, theoretical reasoning. And he says, you know, you might be surprised by this, but uh, ethics used to be called practical reasoning. It was a, it was a under the category of reason. Yeah. And so uh, it seems like in abolition of man, what he's lamenting there is that the subjectivism and this turn to the self has disordered uh, 
disordered your relation to the good. And you ought to feel this way because it's morally right to feel this way. And that's what the old school education was supposed to do. Maybe looking at Aristotle and you're supposed to be, uh, you're supposed to be attuning yourself to feel a certain way. So, you know, he talks about the, the, uh, the waterfall and he's going over this, this old debate, whether it's sublime or whether it's beautiful yeah. or pretty. Right. And he's saying, no, it's objectively sublime. You should feel this way, but not maybe because just for feeling sake, but because your feelings ought to be guided by your reason as well. That's a great summary. Let's work with it. And then think about why this dystopia comes up and what the implied solution is. Because of the three of them, probably Lewis is the more preachy. Yeah. Yeah. works. Yeah. I think think that's probably why it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't survive as well as fiction. It's obvious the author wants you to move a certain direction. Okay. All three of these are, I mean, these are probably all C level novels, not, you know, they're not, they're not like up there with Dostoevsky or something. Okay. Uh, yeah. They're not Dickens or Shakespeare, but, and that's partly because the authors are kind of telling us what we're supposed to think. Real, real quick, if I could say with that, um, is that, is that a, a function of the genre of dystopia or, or is there like a, would you, do you have an A-list uh, dystopian novel that you think is the best? Yeah. Good question. Um, let me think about that. I don't think it's necessarily a function of it, but it's like with Animal Farm. He's trying to sh- tell you something, right? Yeah. Literature is showing, not telling. Philosophy, yeah. essay, you tell people what you're supposed to think. Yeah. In literature, you show them. So when it starts to be more like a, uh, it's basically an allegorical story teaching you something, then yeah. it's no longer in the area of literature. Okay. So so, so then maybe for, for me, like one of my favorite books is uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, Philip K. Dick. And in yeah, that... are showing in that one. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. It's a dystopian novel still, but y- you can, a lot of people argue different things about what he was really trying to say. Is he trying to say this or that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's- few, like, like some, some philosophers think the more confusing them, the more, the more it takes people to talk about what I really mean, the better I've done. Yeah. But I think, I think that he is doing more just like, he's just showing us an idea of a, of a future that doesn't seem to be one we'd want. Okay, that that's good. That's that's good criteria. I like that. It's helpful. So, oh yeah, what you just said about education is exactly right. What we were talking about earlier in Brave New World and going back to a traditional education. Yeah, right. This will help you perceive beauty. Think about how the circular this is. If you have the right education, you perceive beauty. Well, why should I want to perceive beauty? Because that shows you had the right education. You're calling it beauty. I don't see it, and I'm supposed to take your word for it that if I'd had the right education, I would see this as sublime. Well, what if what if you were to say the right uh, the right education would properly orient you to view reality as you should or as it's meant to yeah, be seen yes, by definition, right? That doesn't get us anywhere. That doesn't like that doesn't that doesn't help adjudicate between contenders. Well, you say this one this you see this one helps you see reality as um, as it should, and this one doesn't. But then you're you you set up some criterion by which you're judging them, which at least in this case is within one of them. Okay. So the other guy will say foul, right? Well, I'm, yeah. you, you pinned me for three seconds on my back and you called it over, but I wasn't wrestling. I was doing jujitsu. Yeah. So you can't say you won. You didn't win. So then would you, would you say you need to go into their conception and, and like perform a reductio or, or how are we adjudicating then? Yeah, I would, uh, I, I'm going to use to illustrate again, not, not as a proof text, but illustrate John chapter one verses one through five. But let me, let me get there from what you just said. 
you see how Lewis's thing about sublime is the non-cognitive. Mm-hmm. If you had the right education, you'd be appeared to correctly. You'd get it. You'd feel because sublime is not something you can write an essay about. That's one of his points. If they give the little kid in his education and say a blank paper, say here, write about the sublime. That's not what you do with the sublime. You're just struck by it. Yeah. So again, it's this non-cognitive stuff. Okay. Now there is a non-cognitive part of life. I'm not saying there isn't, but it comes after the foundational truths are in place. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could say what you just said a moment ago a little bit differently. If you had the foundation in place, then you'd understand, including your non-cognitive aspects, reality correctly. But just saying that doesn't get it there. And the appeal to the Tao is too vague to get us there. We can have a robust and thick. It's not a robust and thick. I I guess that's an ambiguous term nowadays. A a robust and uh, substantial natural theology that shows the eternal power and divine nature of God. Or you knew it was, you knew this was on the way soon. Yeah. Chapter 21. Look what, look what this says. Why didn't Lewis read this? Chapter 21 on religious worship in the Sabbath day, the light of nature shows. So this is the, just the light of nature that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all is good and does good unto all. And therefore is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. So Merlin's saying there's some people who did that to some extent. Yeah. I I think historic Christianity and Paul saying, no, no one seeks God. No one, one. no one does what is right. Yeah. So we need more than a vague Tao and a return to the pack. Yeah. yeah, and it's because we had only a vague Tao that we're in the problems that we're in right now. So just going back to it's not going to solve any problems. Okay, so so I, I think that's probably right. I think that's probably um, a deficiency in Lewis's answer, though. I I think the way he's pointing out, I, I love the objective room because it's so it seems so pertinent to today. Of say this, say this about this. Point here, point here. Uh, I think there's a point where he's supposed to step on the cross, maybe. And that that was when Mark Studdock was like, wait, huh? Like, why would you have me step on it if it was fake? If it didn't mean anything, why would I step on it? Oh, because it's part of your culture. It and means that kind of you. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. That, I think that's really I think there's so you were asking that earlier. So what do we do? And I haven't really, I guess, given an answer myself. Yeah. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. The word is inescapable, and you hinted at this earlier when you went to the integrity test, the word is ultimately inescapable so that you can't finally silence it. It will always be there revealing God. And that's why the response to Stephen is just fury, gnashing your teeth and killing him because you can't actually get rid of that witness. So the word reveals who God is, if we want to respond to the deficiencies in these dystopias, we should be able to show who God is Mm. and how that is a life full of meaning. So yes, it's true. You've, you've lost meaning, but here's why, and here's what to do about it. Yeah. It's not a vague natural theology. It's 
full and clear. And it's because humans did that, that we now need redemption through Christ. Yeah. So I think replacing that, otherwise you're getting a situation where it's like, do they need Christ? Like the people in limbo don't need Christ, I guess. Well, okay. So, so let's go, let, maybe we can go one by one. So, so 1984 in, in talking to uh, Weston, uh, no, Winston, Winston, Winston's from the space trilogy. So in talking to Winston, uh, and maybe you've got his ear, you're going to counsel him and you say, here's what you should do next time O'Brien comes to you and he's going to bring you to room 101. Here's what you do. Um, do you, do you say, give him, give him a healthy dose of natural theology? Do you say, preach the gospel to him? Like, what, what, what do you think? How, how is he yeah. disproving? Yeah. Yeah. So let's think about this kind of thought experiment. You'll say, just answer it, but I'm going to do a meta thing and think about the thought experiment. Cause you'll see that about now. Right. So what would you do? Should I write a letter to my congressperson and tell them uh, this or that? What I've done is a little bit differently. I'm diagnosing how you got here. And that happened, we were from, we'll connect this back up to the beginning. We're talking about jujitsu analogies and philosophy, right? He's got your arm isolated. And at 160 degrees, you're almost to 180. How did you get here? So you might say, what do I do? How do I avoid the arm bar? Well, I have some suggestions for that. But what on earth did you do to get in this? Here's the first thing you do. Don't get in that situation. So you were a fideist. You lost what you had. And remember, Christ says that even what you have will be taken from you. And now you're maybe panicking and you want to know what to do. Well, go back to the elementary truths for yourself, not just so you can convince O'Brien. Yeah. But you don't have them in place. Yeah. And you know what? There's been people you might say, but then I'll suffer a lot. Yeah. You could read about the life of Schultz and Nietzsche and, and he suffered a lot. You could read about the life of Paul and he suffered a lot. Yeah. I'm suffering helps people focus their attention. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress in Prison. So I don't have a solution to how to avoid suffering when a tyranny has come upon you because you neglected what you should have been doing. But I have that solution for you of what to do. Get the foundation in place. Yeah. Okay. I don't know that I don't know that O'Brien's open to discussion. Yeah. Right. Pilot wasn't. Yeah, right. What is what is truth? So so if Jesus had just been Someone could say, if he just had spoken better you know, to Pilate, he would have avoided it. He's like, no. I mean, some people, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness comprehends it not. Now, let me read you one more thing from Hideous Strength. Uh, he says, this is a strake. God will have power to give eternal reward and eternal punishment. God, said Mark, how does he come into it? I don't believe in God. But, my friend, said Philostrato, does it follow that because there was no God in the past, there will be no God in the future also? Don't you see, says Strake, that we are offering you the unspeakable glory of being present at the creation of God Almighty. Here, in this house, you shall meet the first sketch of the real God. It is a man, or a being made by man, who will finally ascend the throne of the universe and rule forever. So I think this is getting to that same thread of temptation we saw in all of these books. You can be as God. Now think of the absurdity of this. The the first property of God is that God's eternal, the eternal power of God. God had no beginning. That's why it's absurd to say you could become God. Yeah. Well, I had a beginning. I can't become God. And that's what's going on here, the same absurdity. You can't make something that had no beginning. So 
you get to the absurdity, the self-contradiction, the meaninglessness of unbelief. And that's where I think people can't stand that. When their meaninglessness is exposed, it infuriates them. Mm. So that would be something you could do with any of these bad guy characters. Expose the meaninglessness of what they're doing. And I didn't see any arguments in these that did that. Responding back and saying, well, you're going to lose beauty. Yeah. Doesn't expose the meaninglessness of it. Because because maybe someone will be willing to sacrifice beauty to get to a goal they think is better. Yeah. Well, we would do that, right? Like we we have we're not just driven by beauty. Like well, if I get scarred up and stuff for the sake of Christ, I'll I'll do that because it's not just about beauty. I like beauty, but there's truth wins out when it's in conflict. Yeah, what appears to be beautiful and conflict with truth. So they're describing. I think they're they're each of them getting to this idea of putting yourself in the place of God, and I think that is the fundamental problem from the beginning. But their their answers are very typical mid twentieth century fideism. Well, and and Lewis's answer partly is uh, Mister Bultitude the Bear coming through and running ship on everyone, just destroying the whole all the bad guys. Yeah, uh, which is interesting. Maybe it's it's nature's revenge kind of thing going on there. But uh, it, the the something that struck me just real quick from the quote from that hideous strength. It sounds like modern conversation around uh, artificial intelligence, so called AGI, right? So. Yeah the singularity point, we're going to create God. And there's tons of great science fiction yeah. stories about that, but yeah. they it's, it's actually happening where we will create God. Yeah. And it's like, dude, read some old science fiction, please like stop doing that. Well, that's what's funny, kind of funny. I think with, with uh, pop culture, I mentioned earlier, Sam and Dean, and they end up deposing God and replacing God with uh, Lucifer's son. Mm. Right? Not, not the son of God, but the son of Lucifer ends up ruling the world. And and that's supposed to be a good thing. So, yeah, I think there's there's the need for meaning. This is the sense in which you can't erase the logos. It says the logos is the light of man. It's our life in verse one four. Yeah, the logos is the life and the light of man. You can't erase that in yourself. You you want meaning. So Shankara or Nagarjuna are both explaining to you their philosophies. And that gets back to your integrity test. If you had integrity, why does it matter that you can, can or can't explain your move to silence? Just be silent. And that's ultimately what Nirvana is. It's not, it's not people think Nirvana is like a heaven place or they think it's really bad music. It's non-being. Yeah. So the opposite of the word is non-being. Being as a creation of God reveals God, and it's our obligation to show that. And the alternative is negations, non-being. So how well can we do to show that? I'm putting that as a challenge to to you and me and to the audience. We got to where we're at because we were being fideists. Mm. And we might not like the direction we see things going, but... I, I, if you could show me we had the foundation in place and we're still getting into this trouble, then I'm wrong. Yeah. So this is testable. This is not just throwing something out there. You can test it. I think what we'll see is we don't have the foundation in place. We're badly divided. We can't even show the fundamental things about God. We think mm-hmm. it takes an intense philosophical journal article to get even a small step into showing God's existence. And, and yeah, so what's, what's the outcome of that? That's not, that's not the foundation in place. 
So when I read these, that's what I see. I see nightmarish stories that you wouldn't want to live in, but the people who live in them don't know what they need to know. That's Socrates, and they should know it. That's Stephen. That's good. Man, that's good. I want to I always want to make it like because I feel I feel the weight of what you're saying. And so so maybe for the listeners, like, what do I do then? So so uh can you just reiterate again for us? Like what what do you think? So we should get that foundation in place, but how might someone go about setting up that foundation for themselves if they've been a fideist uh in the past, they've just kind of taken things on blind faith or um how would how would they go about getting right so that when it's their turn they're not yeah silent. well let me, since you and i are in philosophy we might use philosophy terms i'm going to describe this without trying my best not to do that just because i think any christian can and should do this any christian could be called on in a setting to witness i think you would have to begin the way that paul begins which is with the clarity of general revelation challenge yourself to be able to show what's clear about the eternal power and divine nature of God. That requires doing two things, that positive work, but also the negative work of knowing what are the other views. A lot of what these authors do, a lot of times C.S. Lewis and others narrow it down to there's just materialists or Christian theism. And that's simply not accurate. And what happens then is you'll get someone will read Aristotle and think, well, he gave an argument for God's existence. He's on our side. They don't know, well, that's a third view. That's called Greek dualism. He also denies God the creator. It's not just materialists and Christian theists. So become familiar with what are the challenges that have been raised up against the knowledge of God. And be ready to demolish them. And that's going to take some commitment to being mentored. So find a mentor. That's something that that I do. Um, I'm available to be mentoring you helping you grow through those things. And because of the internet, you don't have to move and go to ASU. You, you can just be mentored uh, on a Zoom meeting, but find a mentor. It's like if someone said, man, I saw, I saw a purple belt in jujitsu. He was great. How do I do that? Well, you're not going to get it by reading a book probably. You're going to have to be someone who knows what they're doing. will have to help you do that. Yeah. So yeah, find a mentor. And that might be part of the problem. I say, yeah, none of my, all my mentors say you just have to start with God. Everyone believes God deep down. Well, you're not going to be able to respond to challenges and find someone who can help you see what's clear about general about God in general relation. Yeah. And that's good. That's, that's helpful. Uh, this is good as, as always, man, challenging and fun. Uh, Time flies, right? It, it does. Yeah. We've been, it's an hour and 40 in. Uh, that was compelling and uh, I'm excited about it, man. I'm excited to, to do this myself, to be thinking through um, my my own reasons, to be checking my foundations, to be trying to apply this to to everyday life, uh, and, and what we see in the news, not everything's gonna, you know, it's it's not a, an allegory for America in 2021, but yeah, man, totalitarianism is always around the corner in every generation. Uh, Fideism is always around, just you know, with the siren call, and yeah, to be on guard, to be fighting that, to be to be knowing what you believe and why you believe it. Yeah. Well, and uh, I don't, I don't know how, how it works with giving out information for contacting, but I'm sure we can make it possible so people can be in touch if they want to do go further. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. People can leave a comment or something and we can, we can uh, get you in touch. Definitely. Yeah. That'd be awesome.
Well, man, thanks so much. This has been huge. We covered a ton. Uh, I can't wait till our next one. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but uh, I'm, I'm excited for it because I always learn so much and I love just being able to talk uh, through this stuff with someone who's, who's so learned. Same here. Well, what I'm looking, what'll be a lot of fun is this. Sometime our crat, our paths will cross in, in the physical world and we'll get to roll and we can film that. Oops. We can film that and put that up. And I have no doubt you'll win because you have more of a wrestling background than I do, but it will just be a lot of fun. And then we can have, we can have the, uh, the rolling edition of uh, Parker and Anderson. That'd be so good. Yeah. Rolling with Anderson. Yeah. That'd be great. Right. All right. Well, uh, we could talk about this more and, and uh, Lord willing, we're going to someday soon, but uh, for now it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory. 